This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Japanese Destroyer Captain, a very poorly named but extremely fascinating autobiography by Captain Hara Tameichi of the Imperial Japanese Navy. Hara was present at Pearl Harbor, Guadalcanal, and Midway, and recounts his wartime experience in this, one of the most popular war memoirs in Japan. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 80, The Great Gamble. I can think of no better way to introduce our main character this week than the way that Dr. Eri Hata does in her book, Japan 1941, so I'm going to just borrow her setup wholesale. First, I have to set the scene. On the 28th of May, 1905, the Battle of Tsushima between the Navy of Imperial Russia and that of Japan raged on. Aboard the cruiser Nishin, a 21-year-old ensign assigned to duty on the bow, was wounded by incoming Russian fire. Dr. Hata continues, quote, Assigned to frontline duty at the bow of the Japanese cruiser in the Battle of Tsushima, the ensign was hit by a shell fragment that set his lower body on fire. It also scooped a hole as big as a newborn's head from his right thigh and cost him the index and middle fingers of his left hand. He recuperated in the naval hospital in Nagasaki for the next 160 days. When infection set in, the doctor suggested amputating his left arm. I entered the Navy with the ambition of becoming a naval soldier and going to war, the sailor said. Either I die from this festering wound because I refuse to have my arm amputated, or I recover from it and continue being a soldier. I have a one in two chance and I shall bet my life on it. End quote. The soldier won the bet. He recovered without losing his arm. This was the first great gamble in the life of Yamamoto Isoroku, but it would not be the last. This week, and if you're getting this on release day, 72 years and 364 days after the attack which made him a legend, we're going to discuss the life and career of Yamamoto Isoroku, the architect of Pearl Harbor. How did he formulate such a daring plan, why was it such a short-term success, and why in the long term did it have no prospect for victory? Yamamoto Isoroku was born on April 4, 1884 in Nagaoka, in modern Niigata Prefecture. He was born under the name Takano Isoroku. His father, Takano Sadayoshi, was a middle-rank samurai from the old Nagaoka domain. However, Isoroku himself was adopted a good ways into his career by the Yamamoto family. Isoroku is a fairly unusual reading of the characters Gojuroku, or 56, his father's age at the time of his birth. 
I've been unable to locate details of why Isoroku decided to join the Navy, but some inferences can be made based on his background. Nagaoka was a Tokugawa loyalist domain, and was part of an alliance of domains in northern Japan, which fought on against the Meiji government after the fall of Edo and the abdication of the Tokugawa. The fighting, if not bloody on the scale of, say, the American Civil War, was still intense, and bad feelings against disloyal northerners lingered on well into the Meiji period. As the native son of a disloyal domain, many avenues of advancement would be closed to young Isoroku, an issue compounded by the fact that Niigata's educational infrastructure was as yet underdeveloped, and that as a result he would have stood little chance of advancement in the country's only real meritocratic structure, the national bureaucracy. Not that it would have mattered that much, Isoroku, while smart, was not bookish to the degree that passing those grueling exams required. His interest and temperament always seemed more suited to the military, but the army was closed to him. From its inception until really the 1920s or so, the Japanese army was strongly biased against northerners in favor of descendants of Choshu samurai, Choshu being the domain that dominated the officer corps of the original national army. The navy, however, was relatively more open. While it had been early on dominated by the samurai of the old Satsuma domain, it had evolved into a more meritocratic structure, comparatively speaking. Most likely, it's often suggested, that's because of the liberalizing influence of the two forces the Imperial Japanese Navy was patterned off of, the Royal Navy of Great Britain and the United States Navy. So, Isoroku joined the Navy, graduating from officer school in 1904, just in time for the Russo-Japanese War. As we've established, he served at the Great Victory of Tsushima, the most distinguished victory in the history of the Imperial Navy. This is also where he lost two of his fingers, his left index and ring finger, specifically, a disfigurement which would mark him for the rest of his life. Still, he could have lost the whole arm, so all things considered, I suppose he lucked out. After the war, Isoroku engaged in that most military of activities, punching the clock to build up enough seniority for promotions, which would in turn make him eligible for his ultimate goal, Naval Staff College. A staff college is a specific type of military institution designed to train its graduates in one of the newfangled innovations of modern warfare, the general staff. These are the people with the extremely unsexy but very important job of meticulously organizing and planning for future conflicts, so that if and when war breaks out, the machinery of warfare can kick into gear without several confusing months of trying to figure out just how all these vast armies and navies are supposed to work together and plan together. In essence, as war gets more complex, it becomes harder to organize. It's the job of people like these to make sure everything comes together in a functional way. Yamamoto finally made the Naval Staff College in 1914, and graduated two years later with a promotion to lieutenant commander and a spot commanding a small naval squadron. There he would pass the next three years before going on to a career-defining assignment. In 1919, he was sent to study at Harvard University in the United States. Specifically, he was sent to study the workings of the oil industry, and came back in 1923 with a healthy appreciation of the industrial might of the world's foremost rising power. 
The experience was one he would often allude back to later in life, as he planned for a war he had no confidence in winning. Isoroku would do another tour in the U.S. in 1926, serving as the naval attaché to the Japanese embassy in Washington, D.C. After returning back to Japan in 1928, he was given one more career-defining assignment, command of the Akagi, one of Japan's new aircraft carriers. Carriers were pretty poorly understood technology at this point. After all, military air power was still fairly new. The first use of airplanes to bomb another country had been a scant 17 years earlier in the 1911 Italo-Ottoman War, and in World War I, half the time none of the power seemed entirely clear on what planes were even supposed to be used for in a fight. And of course, aircraft carriers were just a whole new level of crazy, what on earth did you need planes on a boat for? Yamamoto, however, saw how useful they could be. As advocates of air power like American General Billy Mitchell had demonstrated, airplanes could sink battleships, and planes on a carrier had a much better range than guns on a battleship. The range of aircraft was also improving constantly, they would only get more useful. Besides, the disarmament treaties Japan had signed at Washington, D.C. capped battleship tonnage, but not carrier tonnage. Japan could build as many as they liked without running afoul of the American-backed disarmament movement. After completing his tour as commander of the Akagi, Yamamoto, now clearly one of the Navy's rising stars, was given a political assignment of great importance. He was to accompany the Japanese delegation to yet another round of disarmament conferences, this one to be held in London in 1930. Specifically, he was bumped up to the rank of Rear Admiral and put in as the number two naval man on the delegation, behind only Admiral Abo Kyokazu. Yamamoto was chosen both for his intellect and because at this point he was extremely hawkish on the idea of disarmament, like most members of the Navy General Staff. Here's where we probably need to back up a bit and talk a bit about the internal politics of the Japanese Navy. Broadly speaking, Japan's navy can be divided into two camps. The civilian-led naval ministry was pretty open to compromise with the West on arms limitation, but the military-dominated general staff was not. Yamamoto, as a member of the latter, was very much influenced by their views. He thought arms limitation would make it difficult for Japan to exercise its all-important right of self-defense, and undercut the ability of the general staff to plan for the nation's defense. Thus, during preliminary negotiations over whether to accept arms limitation at all, Yamamoto responded to protests that naval expansion would be too expensive anyway, which were made by a representative of the finance ministry named Kaya Okinori, who would later be the minister of finance, by shouting, Say another word, Kaya, and you'll get a smack in the face. According to some witnesses, he even physically threatened Prime Minister Wakatsukirejiro over his support of arms limitation. All of this gross insubordination, by the way, is made a little more comical by the fact that Yamamoto Isoroku was all of 5 foot 3 inches tall and 120 pounds, or 160 centimeters and about 56 and a half kilograms for those of you who speak metric. So, in other words, not what you would call physically intimidating. However, Yamamoto's hawkishness came with some pretty severe restrictions. Unlike other members of the general staff who believed that with some planning and luck, Japan could win another Tsushima against the U.S., Yamamoto was under no such illusions. 
Russia had folded after Tsushima because its society had been collapsing under the pressures of war. The United States did not have those problems, and if Japan beat the United States in a naval battle, the Americans would just build and send another fleet. Thus, after returning to Japan, Yamamoto began the slow and steady process of rethinking his views. By the time of the Second London Naval Conference in 1936, he was actually in favor of arms limitation, not because he liked the idea any more than he had, but because he saw no other way forward, since an arms race would be futile. Quote, Anyone who has seen the auto factories in Detroit and the oil fields in Texas knows that Japan lacks the national power for a naval race with America. The 10-10-6 ratio of battlecruisers, that is, 10 for the U.S. and Britain, 6 for Japan, works just fine for us. It is a treaty to restrict the other parties, the United States and Great Britain. Now, it's probably time that we stopped and talked a bit about the character of this man, Yamamoto. As you might guess from the earlier anecdotes, he was a pretty forward kind of guy, and unlike most Japanese leaders, he was very forthright in his opinions and willing to disagree openly and loudly. This made him a very polarizing figure. He had an extremely small but ferociously dedicated following among younger officers who looked up to him as a trailblazer of reform, but was utterly despised by the senior leadership for his rude behavior. He also engaged in the kind of vices that officers, as the supposed heirs of the samurai tradition, were not supposed to indulge in. He was a tremendous gambler, and apparently a very talented one. According to one famous story, during his time in London he found time to swing down to Monaco, where he was eventually forcibly ejected from a casino on the suspicion that he was cheating. In Japan, he would constantly engage in gambling in the sort of seedy areas a man like him was not supposed to visit. He also frequented the geisha district of Shimbashi, Tokyo, where he earned the nickname 80 sen, or 80 cents. A manicure by a geisha, you see, cost 1 yen, but since Yamamoto only had 8 fingers, he demanded a 20% discount. He also carried on a very passionate affair with a geisha named Kawaii Chiyoko, and after his death, his widow, Yamamoto Reiko, scandalized Japan by revealing that he was much closer to Chiyoko than to his own wife. He was, in short, a very scandalizing man, and not at all inclined to mollify opinion by hiding his thoughts on issues. His refusals to keep quiet and his sudden change of heart earned him some very vocal enemies through the rest of the 1930s. He began pushing for acceptance of arms limitation, and worked constantly against the increasingly popular idea of an alliance with Nazi Germany. For his trouble, he was threatened multiple times with assassination. The naval minister, Yonai Mitsumasa, actually appointed him commander of Japan's combined fleet in 1939, mainly to get him out of Tokyo and away from potential assassins. Unfortunately, this also meant that he was not around to counsel caution at a time when such counsels could have been very useful. However, here's where we get to a slightly tricky part of Yamamoto's personality. You see, he was absolutely opposed to war with the United States, but he was also a very egotistic believer in his own abilities. He opposed the war, but he did not ever take steps such as threatening to resign over the rising tensions and provocations against the U.S. Instead, he began to fall back on his general staff training and began thinking of how he would fight such a war if it were to come. 
Yamamoto opposed war with the United States, but believed very strongly in his own brilliance, and wanted a chance to demonstrate it. One can picture him saying something like, I'm not saying we should fight a war, but if we did, here's the smart way to do it. Here again, Yamamoto demonstrated his inability to play nice with the other children. He suggested that if war did happen, the entire Japanese playbook would have to be thrown out. You see, that playbook was essentially the global naval orthodoxy. The Imperial Navy was still very much in the grips of American naval theorist Alfred Thayer Mahan, and Mahan's dictum was that a numerically inferior force, like Japan's would be if it were to fight a war with the United States, should make the enemy come to it and fight defensively. It should rely on lengthening supply lines, breakdowns, and other issues, in other words, a tactical application of Murphy's Law, to weaken the attacking force. So weakened, the defenders could then pounce in for a decisive battle. The Japanese plan for war with the United States through the 20s and 30s was essentially to do just this. They'd worked out some extremely Byzantine calculations for exactly how far they'd have to draw the Americans in to weaken them enough for an attack. Yamamoto, however, pointed out the obvious flaw in the plan. The Americans had the exact same playbook. After all, Mahan had been an American. He'd even taught at Annapolis the American Naval Academy. Yamamoto said the Americans would know exactly what the Japanese plan would be, and as such they'd simply refrain from attacking until they built up an overwhelming force. He was absolutely right. The American naval general staff had guessed the Japanese plan years ago, and had suggested that exact countermove. There's a lot of discussion that floats out there about what the essence of strategy is. One of the suggestions is to do whatever it is your opponent will least expect. Apparently, Yamamoto was a believer in that theory because he suggested that if the Americans expected them to defend, then the one thing Japan would have to do was attack. Specifically, it would have to attack everywhere at once and hope the initial surprise would work in its favor. Maybe, just maybe, they could hit the Allies hard enough that they'd be willing to talk terms. The key was going to be launching a much broader assault than the Allies would anticipate. Anyone with a map and half a brain could guess that at the start of the war, Japan would hit the Philippines and British Malaya, but if they really wanted to go for broke, the key was going to be the American fleet assembling at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Defeat that fleet, and the U.S. would need months, maybe even years, to assemble another for a counterattack. In addition to being clever and unanticipated, this plan had a nice intrinsic appeal as well. After all, Japan had begun the victorious Russo-Japanese War with a sneak attack on the Russian fleet. So it's a good precedent to follow. After all, it worked so well the first time. Now, if that plan didn't work to end the war right there... Plan B was to push forward in the Pacific. If the Japanese pushed the U.S. back far enough, they could set up a defensive perimeter that could be fortified to hold the U.S. Navy off. Plan C was to keep doing Plan B until it worked. And so Yamamoto Isoroku began planning the first steps of a war he had opposed from the get-go. It's a bit hard to say one way or the other, but it seems like Yamamoto really was torn by the coming of a war between his knowledge that fighting the U.S. was likely to be a disaster and his desire to prove himself. 
After all, Japan's last great naval campaign had been the one where he'd lost his fingers 36 years earlier. If Yamamoto pulled this off, he could be the next Togo Heihachiro, a naval hero with a name to inspire future generations. It seems, in other words, that he was caught in a war between his good sense and his self-confidence. It's probably true that if anyone could have pulled it off, it would have been Yamamoto, but that's the rub, it's unlikely anyone could have pulled it off. During the final months leading up to war, Yamamoto displayed a remarkable calm. He drilled the forces he had been assigned, including six carriers and some 400 planes, in Kinko Bay near Kagoshima, which had a topography pretty close to that of Pearl Harbor. One of the carriers in that group, by the way, was Yamamoto's old command, the Akagi. He also did something very unusual in Japan, and directly solicited feedback from those beneath him. For example, when he demonstrated his carrier maneuvers to observers from the other branches of the government, a member of the delegation from the Korean Governor General's office pointed out that the carriers appeared to be very vulnerable to aerial counterattack. In fact, that's what would sink a bunch of Japanese carriers during the Battle of Midway in 1942. Yamamoto, rather than becoming upset, rewarded the man for his insights with one of the last bottles of foreign imported whiskey in Japan. On November 26, 1941, as Nomura Kichisaburo and Kurusu Saburo were engaged in desperate last-minute diplomacy in Washington, D.C., Yamamoto's fleet set out. They took a northerly route from the Corral Islands in order to thread the line of American bases between Alaska and Hawaii, and thus hopefully avoid detection. On December 2nd, the commander of that fleet, Nagumo Chuichi, received a message from Yamamoto, who remained in Tokyo. Climb Mount Nitaka, 1208. This was the go-ahead for the attack. 1208 meant that the attack should be launched on December 8th, or December 7th on the U.S. side of the international dateline. The actual attack has been a source of debate and hair-splitting more or less from the moment it happened. Two waves of fighters inflicted heavy losses on the U.S., Two battleships were lost, several more damaged or forced out of service, hundreds of planes destroyed, and 2,403 Americans killed. However, Nagumo has also been accused of being overcautious in his approach. He cancelled a planned third wave of attacks which would have destroyed even more ships, and his fighters failed to hit the American fuel reserves in Hawaii. If he had hit those, the mobility of the American fleet would have been crippled for months. Yet all of this armchair quarterbacking is probably an unfair assessment. Nagumo was under orders to limit his losses as much as possible, on the assumption that during the war to come, Japan would need to preserve its strength. Besides, the three American aircraft carriers stationed at Pearl Harbor, Enterprise, Lexington, and Saratoga, were nowhere to be found. Nagumo was afraid that another wave might give away his position and allow those carriers to launch a counterattack. In fact, they were nowhere nearby. Enterprise and Lexington were on resupply missions elsewhere in the Pacific, and the Saratoga had just finished a refit at the naval yards in fabulous Bremerton, Washington, just a few miles from where I sit now. So instead, Nagumo went home. Pearl Harbor was by any measure a tactical success. The Japanese forces sent to Hawaii fulfilled the mission of hitting the U.S. hard enough to stall a potential counterattack providing cover for the sweeping offensive launched by the Japanese across Asia. 
In Japan itself, the news was greeted with jubilation in the streets. Crowds thronged Tokyo, cheering everywhere and paying their respects at the Imperial Palace for the Emperor's divine guidance. Now, at long last, the Japanese were done being kicked around by the Westerners. Now, at long last, Japan would stand up and claim her place as an equal, not a subordinate. These celebrations were quite a contrast to the rather contrived ones that had been arranged celebrating victory in China. After all, fighting a war against Western imperialism had a lot more intrinsic appeal than fighting a war against the Chinese to liberate the Chinese from the Chinese? Look, just don't ask questions. And yet, Pearl Harbor was a strategic disaster. Now, how can something be tactically brilliant and a strategic disaster, you ask? Well, the attack met its short-term goals, but its long-term ones were built on some very faulty assumptions. Simply put, in a modern state where people are more directly invested in a war, it's really impossible to hit another country hard enough to break its will to resist in one blow. Nuclear weapons arguably are a different story, but that's another episode in its own right. All of this is a roundabout way of saying that in the long term, all Pearl Harbor did was hand ammunition to American propagandists. As a result, the American public, previously leery of war in Asia, was now willing to endure any cost to smash the perfidious Japanese. And if it came down to a war of attrition, well, one of those countries was a lot bigger than the other one. One of my colleagues at the University of Washington likes to tell a story about how his father, who was underage at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack, falsified his own age and enlisted under false pretenses just for a chance to get back at those damn Japs for their treacherous behavior. Yamamoto would spend the rest of his life fighting off the American juggernaut he had so enraged. Plan B failed spectacularly during the Battle of Midway in June 1942, just six months after Pearl Harbor. American planes took advantage of the weakness pointed out by that staffer who had received the bottle of whiskey so many months ago, and struck the Japanese fleet from the air. As a result, all four carriers in Yamamoto's fleet, including his old command, the Akagi, were sunk. From this point on, Yamamoto committed his forces to a series of attritional, delaying actions. He essentially fell back on the old playbook dictated by Mahan. The great gambler was running out of cards. Partially, this was because Midway had been such a disaster that the general staff stopped taking Yamamoto's advice. Instead, more conservative leaders who favored the old plan simply ignored him. In April 1943, as Yamamoto was making an inspection tour in the South Pacific to raise morale, American codebreakers intercepted a message revealing his itinerary. Under direct orders from President Roosevelt to take him out, the Americans dispatched fighters along the planned route. On April 18th, they intercepted Yamamoto's transport and shot him down. The architect of Pearl Harbor was found by a search-and-rescue team the next day, his body cremated and his ashes brought back to Tokyo for a full state funeral. So what can we make of this man and his plan? As we've discussed, Yamamoto was a gambler at his core who took big risks on the theory that they offered big rewards. He wasn't necessarily wrong to do so. Many great commanders, from Caesar to Napoleon, operated on similar assumptions. However, his gamble at Pearl Harbor was based on some faulty thinking, and as a result, his assessment of Japan's odds was mistaken as well. 
Victory was not just unlikely, it was impossible. Yamamoto is often remembered as the reluctant warrior, ordered to plan a war he did not want, and that's entirely fair. Likely Japan would have been better off had Yamamoto wielded more influence over the decision-making process and not just the planning one. On the other hand, the plan he put forward backfired so spectacularly that it's difficult to say he deserves no blame for misreading the situation. His goal of cowing the U.S. proved impossible, and instead, Pearl Harbor became a euphemism in America for the worst kind of backstabbing. I was in middle school on September 11th, 2001, and even then I remember references to it as the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century. In the end, the legacy of Yamamoto Isoroku was not as he would have wanted his tactical brilliance or his unorthodox style, and in fact was not determined by him at all. His legacy was and always will be the one laid out for him by the President of the United States, and I don't really think I could phrase it better than he did. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, the President of the United States. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleagues delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. 
In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 
1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Ladies and gentlemen, the national anthem. <laughs> 